Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Piercy Alley and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. And I'm speaking to Professor Helen Stewart about freedom and free will. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, what would your definition of free will be? Well, um, I guess in lots of ways, I'm actually not so keen on that term free will. I think it it kind of comes out of a particular way of setting, setting up the debate, which I think we need to get away from. I mean, for a start, I think it's associated with a view of the world according to which, though, maybe lots of beings have things we might call a will, that's to say, you know, are able to act voluntarily on desires and things like that. Only we human beings have free wills, that's to say the sorts of wills which make it possible to kind of choose between different alternatives. And I think that picture puts a very kind of hard and fast divide between human beings and the rest of the animal kingdom. And that is part of what, in my work, I've been trying to get away from. I've been trying to emphasize um, the continuities between human beings and animals in the realm of agency and action. And so I tend to think this term free will is not terrifically helpful. I mean, traditionally, of course, um, free will has been very kind of closely connected to moral responsibility. So it's only we human beings who are morally responsible for things. And that's because only we human beings have this special property called free will. I think that way of thinking about things is becoming kind of increasingly outdated and problematic in view of what we know about the continuities of the, you know, of animal life, um, of the biological world. So rather than defining free will, I kind of try to reorient the debate a bit. So so my central concept, the one that, you know, I, I put at the centre of my book, A Metaphysics for Freedom, is, is actually agency rather than free will. Because I think that's a concept that applies much more naturally to to the higher animals and their agents as well as we as well as we are you know they plan things they have little strategies for doing things they act their agents and we don't have to burden the concept with the baggage that i think the concept of free will kind of tends to drag along in its train you know kind of religious baggage moral baggage and a kind of human-animal divide baggage that, that I'm rather anxious to get away from. I mean, I suppose if, if, if you went to the philosophical literature and you were looking for a definition of free will these days, probably what you'd find is people saying, well, free will is the capacity to do something different from what you in fact did. You know, that's what it's all about. It's about the capacity for real, proper, full-blown, robust choice. And, you know, I don't, 
I don't, in a way, want to quarrel with that way of thinking about it. I just think that it isn't only we who who have the capacity for that kind of choice about alternatives. I think that's something that extends some way into the animal kingdom in some particular respects. So what was it that inspired you to study free will, if I can use that that terminology again? Well, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I know the answer to it. Um, I've always found the problem really, really fascinating ever since, you know, being an undergraduate and first coming across it. Um, I mean, actually, even before that, it was something that I kind of used to sort of mull over by myself. And then, I, you know, I came to study philosophy and found that there was, you know, this was a place where you could think about this thing that I've been wondering about in a in a rigorous way and people had written about it and I could read what they'd written and that was that was very exciting to me. I mean it is one of those sort of old chestnut problems in philosophy that I think anyone who's got a bit of a philosophical bent is going to feel pretty fascinated by. Then I think another another factor that made it particularly fascinating to me was that I mean my my field is really philosophy of mind, philosophy of action. That's what I've that's what I've gone on and, and specialised in. But free will is usually treated as a topic in moral philosophy. I think that's fair to say. You know, most people who teach it will teach it as part of a moral philosophy course or you know an ethics course or something, where it will be very tightly connected to questions concerning whether people are morally, morally responsible for things or not. And I think my background in philosophy of action in particular gave me a rather different perspective on the debate, which made me think I could actually make a contribution to it because one of the things I kept thinking as I read all this literature on free will was that people are really operating when they're writing about free will with a vastly you know, oversimplified and actually incorrect conception of what an action is. And that if you brought to bear some of the more sophisticated insights that people have had in the philosophy of action, you know, into that into that debate about free will, I thought you could really make some progress here. You know, actions are, uh, it's a very complicated concept with a structure all of its own. Um, you really need to think about what it, what it is to act. You know, what sorts of things can act? Can, can cars and computers act? Or is it for some reason only animals that can act and if so what is that reason and questions of that general thought I thought needed to be injected into the free world debate you know it's not just all about moral responsibility although obviously you know that's a very interesting question too so I suppose I felt my my sort of disciplinary specialism had something to bring to, to the free will debate, something important to bring. And that was another that was another kind of motivating factor for me to kind of dig around in the literature and get involved in it. Yeah, there's one thing I, I just thought of while you were speaking, and it's, I suppose, animals, and that includes human and non-human animals, we tend to act a lot on instincts. And a, a friend of mine just found a baby bird that had fallen out of a tree and she's feeding it herself and I went oh, over and, wow. and oh, it's lovely a little blackbird and I've been feeding oh, it um, I fed it a couple of worms and yeah and, and I thought isn't it amazing how it, it just knows as soon as it 
as soon as it sees you and as soon as it's hungry, about every 15 minutes, it just um, throw- <laughs> <laughs> and it throws its head back and opens its mouth and gobbles down the worms. Yeah. And I thought it, it's really not thinking about or, or choosing to do that. It's, it's running purely no. on instinct, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, I think this is something that people often uh, say in response to my view, which is that animals do have agency. They say, oh, but surely it's all instinct with animals. And what I would say to that is, well, A, first of all, much of what human beings do is instinctive too. (laughs) You know, vast swathes of our lives are also constrained by things that are instinctive to us as human beings. I mean, just to, to go back to your blackbird example, if you think about a human neonate, a human baby, they will root around at the breast in just the way your blackbird opens its beak. You know, we, we do have these instincts which ensure that we get through the particularly the earlier phases of life where that's really all we've got to see us through. But as we grow, what evidently happens is that culture and education and life experience start to kick in and play a part in the regulation of our behavior. And what I would want to say is that the same is true. The same is true for at least the higher and more complex animals. They too learn from experience, learn from one another. I mean, there's a great deal of experimental evidence to show that you know many animals do learn from one another. And there is a type of culture and a type of education going on within the animal kingdom too. So this kind of move from surviving basically on on the basis of inborn instincts toward bringing experience and, and culture, education, learning to bear on getting through life, I think that's something that is common to large swathes of, of, of the animal kingdom. So although it's, of course, true that you know, <laughs> instincts play a part, they're not, they're not the only thing that matters by any means um, to, to animal life in general. And what I'd, what I'd want to say then is that animals do have a certain sort of freedom within the parameters that are provided by, by their instincts for doing things this way rather than that way. An example I sometimes use, I have a cat, and my examples are often uh, rather catty examples. Um, I mean, I think my cat can sort of decide whether she can be bothered to get up and start meowing for food or whether she's going to carry on lying in the sunny patch on the carpet for a little bit longer. Those sorts of small decisions about the precise, you know, path to take through your day, I think are, are up to animals in just the same sort of way that they're, they're up to us. And that creates a certain level of of, uh, possibility for choice uh, and for alternatives. And as I said said a bit earlier, lots of people have associated the idea of free will with this idea that you could have done something different. You know, you could have done something different from what you in fact did. And I think that's true of my cat too. You know, perhaps she comes meowing to the door when I come in. Some, Some days she doesn't. I think it's perfectly reasonable and there's, there's no argument to suppose that she isn't just kind of choosing for herself what she feels like doing in those sorts of cases. Uh, so what do you mean by animal agency? Yeah, so I, I said that agency was one of my very, very central concepts. 
And I suppose I mean by agency the power to act. Agency is the power to act. But, of course, that, that doesn't help much because then the question just arises, well, what's acting then? <laughs> and what I want to say is that there's a very important conception of action, very important conception of action, whereby it's something that animals can do that inanimate entities can't do. So I don't think my car can act. I don't think, even though we do speak in this way sometimes, I don't think things like the wind, the sea, those sorts of things, although they're very dynamic in certain respects, I don't think they're agents. I don't think they can act. But animals, at any rate animals um, above a certain level of complexity, I think can act. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that there are, in certain respects, things are, things are up to them. You know, it's up to them, um, at least within the parameters set by things like instinct, what to do, where to go, how quickly to go, in what precise direction. Those sorts of small questions about how to settle the organization of everyday life, I think those in, in respect of settling how to make one's daily, daily life work out, uh, what things to do in precisely what order, those sorts of things. Lots of animals, other than ourselves, have quite a large degree of freedom with respect to those decisions. And that, that freedom is what I think of as intrinsic to proper agency, real agency. I mean, to take, you know, the bird example again, you know, birds are obviously programmed in some way to build nests let's say, of the particular kind that they did in fact build. We know that, you know, that, I don't know, you probably have all sorts of different, well, I know you have all sorts of different birds in Australia, so the ones we have over here. But we have, we have a bird called the long-tailed tit, which I don't think you will have. They make beautiful sort of oval, gorgeous nests with a hole in it. You know, that's the long-tailed tit nest. Now, evidently, that's kind of, that's programmed into the long-tailed tit. But then, you know, the long-tailed tit's got to decide quite where it's going to make its nest. You know, there'll be a range of options within any particular territory, garden, whatever. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that um, agentive powers are exercised um, in making those sorts of decisions about where precisely to build. You know, this tree, that tree, facing this way, that way. You know, those, those sorts of things are the kinds of things over which agential powers might be exercised. So, so that's, really, that's really the view. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Helen Stewart about free will. Could you explain about one-way powers and two-way powers? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was, I was almost tempted to introduce that distinction, actually, to answer your last question. Some people seem to find that distinction quite tricky, but in some way, I, I think it's the, I, the basic idea is pretty easy to understand. So there's a sense in which everything in nature has powers of its own. So, for example, water has got the power to dissolve salt. A heavy, flat brick has got the power to crush an ant, say, if the brick's suitably positioned on top of the ant and so on. But the powers of inanimate things, like water, like the brick, are one-way powers. What do I mean by that? Well, that just means that if the right conditions are in place for the exercise of the power, the power will be exercised. It's not like anything's up to the water 
or to the brick. Okay, you put salt into water, and if it's at the right temperature and pressure, the salt will dissolve. The water, there's no, there's no question about what's going to happen. These, these kinds of interactions are what one might call deterministic. There's one thing and one thing only that's going to happen, given that the setup's right. And I think that's the way in which we think about a lot of inanimate nature. But then think about animate nature. I think, at any rate, our kind of pre-theoretical thought suggests that animals are not like, they're not like the water and the salt, and they're not like the brick. So you put an animal in a situation, certainly there may be parameters constraining what will then happen. I mean, take a hungry dog, okay, and you put a plate of food in front of it. Well, maybe there's like no... No question that the hungry dog is going to eat that plate of food. But there will still be things that are up to the dog. It will be able to kind of choose which side of the bowl it, it, it might eat from, for example. If its owner comes in in the middle, it will be up to the dog whether to carry on eating or go to, you know, nuzzle its, its owner and kind of say a bit of a hello before going back to the dish. These sorts of questions about when to stop, when to start, when to cease, you know, going to be up to the dog when you know whether it finishes the bowl or, or or not those sorts of things i think are questions which are matters for settling by the animal itself at the time of action i think that's how we how we think about animal agency and so the animal's powers i i say and this is it's an old distinction it's not my distinction it goes back to medieval times the animal powers are two-way powers because they are powers to do something or not so the dog can continue to eat the food when its owner comes in, but it can also not continue to eat the food when its owner comes in, for example. So this basic distinction between one-way and two-way powers I think is quite important to our conceptualization of the kind of causation you find in the inanimate world and the kind of causation you find in the animate world. Now, of course, this distinction has been under massive pressure um, in recent years because lots of people who are impressed by what they think of as the sort of scientific way of thinking about things basically think there's no such distinction. They think it collapses because they think, look, if we knew enough about what makes animals, including human beings, tick, we would discover that they're deterministic systems too, that you... Once you know enough about the conditions which produce various kinds of human behavior, it would turn out to be true that were they in place, a human being really wouldn't have any choice either. But I think that's a massive, that's a massive assumption. Uh, it's not something that we know that science has proven. You know, we, in fact, we have reason to think, insofar as we have reason to think anything about the scientific view of determinism versus indeterminism, we've actually got reason to think that the universe is indeterministic, not deterministic. So I just think those sorts of moves really, really need arguing for, and no one has argued for them. They tend to just be imported by assumption, and I suppose part of my work has been involved in you know, railing against, <laughs> railing against that assumption and insisting upon the true specialness of real animal agents um, as compared with what I think of as mere imposters such as, you know, robots, computers, IT systems, 
um, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think you, you've just sort of touched on this, but is there any difference between us human animals and non-human animals in regards to free will? Oh, well, yes. I mean, I think, of course, there is. I mean, it would be... I d- although I place massive emphasis on the continuities between uh, human animals and other animals, it would be crazy to deny that we have the capacity to take many more kinds of consideration into account than other creatures. I mean, the way I think of it, you know, for for simpler creatures, you know, as you go down and down and down the scale of complexity, instinct plays a greater and greater and greater part. Instinct and mechanism plays a greater and greater part. As you, you know, and as you come up the scale of complexity, you're approaching the human, discretion, discretion and agency plays a greater and greater and greater part. And I think there are respects in which, you know, the degree of discretion which human beings have over what they do is very much larger than than that which is had by any other animal. I mean, just, just to take some, some examples, one thing that I think is very distinctive of human beings is that we can be moved by particular sorts of reasons. You know, we can think, oh, it's my duty, or this is what my conscience is telling me, or this is one of my principles, so I'm going to act in this way. So, you know, those sorts of considerations can impact on human action in a way in which I think it's doubtful we have any reason to think they ever impact on on animal action. Another thing is that we have, I suspect, a much greater sense of our own mortality and the span of our lives than most other animals, which impacts in various ways on the sorts of, you know, the sorts of arrangements for activity that we can go in for. So we plan a lot, plan a lot. We plan years ahead sometimes. I think it's very doubtful that many animals plan years ahead. There's a lot of evidence that they plan for for short periods ahead. And, you know, we can deny ourselves immediate pleasures for for longer-term benefits and gains in a way that, again, I think it's it's doubtful that animals have very much of a capacity to do do that kind of thing. And, And another thing, of course, which is hugely important for human beings is that we have a capacity for cooperation, for collaboration, for joint action of an extremely complex kind because linguistically mediated. I mean, of course, lots of animals collaborate and cooperate in all sorts of ways. But, you know, I can arrange with a person to see them in three years' time in the Queen's Head pub in King's Cross. You know, it's like, um, it's a really high, highly fine-grained capacity to ensure that future actions can occur which are coordinated together. I just thought that we, we, we can't expect other animals to, to have. And, and of course, there's, there's technological factors as well, which make the capacities that we have for certain sorts of collaborative and joint action very, very much greater. So, so it would be kind of crazy to say there's no difference. Of course, there are, there are huge, huge differences. But having said that, I guess my my work has been kind of aimed at showing that there's no sort of vast metaphysical divide between human beings and the other animals. What what there is is a continuum. And our powers are actually based on and grounded in powers which are shared with other 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 complex animals. 
and, you know, the powers to move through space in order to carry out plans of our own devising as to how to achieve the various ends that we've got. It's not just it's not just we that can do that, or so I would want to so I would want to say. Thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, you're very welcome, Beth. I've really enjoyed it. And I've been speaking to Professor Helen Stewart about freedom and free will. And that was a part one of a two-part interview, so be sure to tune in next week. Well, that's about all we have time for today, so I've enjoyed your company. Thank you very much for listening.